Hello, everyone. I am That Weems Guy back here for yet another episode, and I'm excited because yet again this week we hit another all-time high for our 30-day rolling average uh, for our podcast, and that's not taking into account the YouTube numbers. That is just strictly the, the podcast feed numbers, and it's continuing to grow. So thank you to the audience, and as always, we remind you to share the link with your smart friends, but don't share it with the dumb ones. Uh, joining us today is Mr. Eric Lund. Eric, Say hello and introduce yourself. How y'all doing out there? Uh, my name's Eric Lund. Uh, currently, I'm a federal agent with a small agency that shall remain nameless. Um, and uh, I'm also uh, uh, done some competition shooting, and so I have a little bit of that background. So uh, I'm looking forward to being on here and uh, and uh, have the unique perspective of I can I can talk uh competently on the competitive side of topics and on the tactical side so um let's uh let's giddy up and see where this takes us all right i've got to delve into that background a little bit you see you've done a little competition now, <laughs> i know you're uspsa grandmaster correct yes yes um yeah uspsa grandmaster um multi-gun you know i really don't worry about the classifications anymore um back when i was doing idpa uh, years ago, I was a master class there too. So yeah, I've, uh, I've had some success on that side. And, and you, uh, you taught, you shot for six team and FN's team, did you? Yeah. Um, so I shot, uh, professionally for, uh, almost a decade. Um, I shot for six hour when they first introduced, uh, um, their rifles and they were expanding their line. So I shot for six hour for two years. And then after that, I uh, joined uh, FN and I shot for, uh, at the time it was FNH, but then they changed the name to FN America, but I was on FN's uh, pro shooting team for uh, about six or seven years. All right. And, you know, you mentioned that you were a federal agent now, but you were a real cop at one time, right? <laughs> I was. I uh, Years ago, a long time ago in a galaxy far away, I was a uh, Virginia State Trooper up in uh, Fairfax County, and I did that for almost uh, nine years. So I have worn the uniform, and uh, and I miss it. I, I do. I, I don't know if I would survive in today's culture of uh, – cameras and and everyone provoking you because uh yeah i think i think my style of law enforcement has probably uh become a little archaic but uh but yeah i love that time and uh i always uh i always have a little place in my heart for all the guys put on a uniform so so you can speak definitively for the quote tactical side of things as well as the competition side of things I would like to say I can speak competently. I don't know if I want to say definitively, Okay. <laughs> but yes, I can. Uh, I feel like I have some, some, some expertise I could offer up. Well, there is one thing that you can clear up for definitively right now. And we're going to call upon your USPSA grand master credentials to definitively solve this for the internet. Are you ready? I am. Have you ever witnessed me perform a sub-second draw on demand? I, I, can, uh, I can attest and affirm that you have performed sub-second draws and hits. You know, I know a lot of guys got sub-second draws. They don't hit anything. You, you got a sub-second draw and you got a good hit. So, uh, so, yes, I have seen it and I can confirm it. And I will stand beside you and sing your praises to anyone who doubts you. So by the rules of the internet, I am eligible now to speak on the whole topic of the sub-second draw. 
Absolutely. You have performed the task. You can competently speak about it. By your honor as a USPSA Grandmaster? I, uh, yes, yes. I, I will bestow that upon you. Yeah, uh, folks, I met Eric in 2013, I think it was. We were both attending an ILFE Master Instructor Workshop. And uh, let's just say some shenanigans ensued in those those three days. And uh, we formed a pretty good friendship. And, and uh, Eric's been a great friend uh, since then. If you go back to one of the early episodes where I did my Mount Rushmore of my personal firearms instructors, uh, Eric's on that, that list. And uh, so Eric... Will everyone here, here to hear me say it or witness me say it, thank you for everything that you've done uh, for me over the years. Uh, I want to say that to you in person, not just, you know, hey, go watch this video. Uh, well, that's, it is a great honor, um, and I, I do not take that lightly. Um, you have been uh, working and perfecting your craft for many years. Uh, you have a lot of influences that are legends in the industry, and just to have my name spoken in that company is, is an honor, and I thank you for that. Well, thank you. It's, it, folks, there have been a lot of times where we've met midweek at a range somewhere. Hey, let's work through this problem. Or what do you think about this? Or let's test this, this bit of gear. And uh, that has had a lot to do with my skills development and philosophical development uh, from an instructor standpoint and an end user standpoint. And uh, I'd like to add that um, you are one of my go-to people when it comes to use of force. So when it comes to topics or things, I know things pop up in the news and uh, you and I will call each other. Or I'll call you, um, you know, being here in Georgia, uh, you know, you're also my, my local expert. So when I, when some of the laws change or things happen, you know, trying to keep my guys in line with state law, even though we're federal, you know, um, I really, uh, I really rely and uh, think very highly of your ability to break down use of force incidents and, uh, you know, and just have intelligent uh, discussions about that topic. And so uh, you were kind of one of my first go-to guys. So uh, I thank you for being there for that. Well, thank you. And I guess now the mutual love fest has been concluded. We can move on to the, uh, to the show topic. Okay. And uh, uh, today we're going to talk about instructor credibility. And to a certain extent, there, and I've been guilty of this myself early in my instructor career, a lot of just people just parrot things that they've been told without putting, you know, critical thinking, any rational thought behind it, and reasoning through it and determining whether or not what they're parroting has value or, or, or credit to it. And one of those that comes to mind immediately for me is the whole fine motor skill versus gross motor skill thing, as particularly when it comes to like a reload. Uh, we'll, we'll just speak in terms of pistol, you know, slide lock, emergency reload. There was this big thing out there for forever, and I still hear it uh, going around, that you should not use the slide stop to release the slide on a slide lock reload because that's a fine motor skill and you won't be able to do that under stress you should grasp the slide and run it uh, and because that's a gross motor skill and I sat there and thought okay all right and then it dawned on me one day well how did the magazine get out of the pistol mm -hmm. you had to hit the mag release button which is about the same size as the slide stop button yeah completely agree it's um you know I, I 
to date myself in the industry, I've been uh, an instructor since 1995. And I remember going through my initial instructor schools with having that topic come up, gross motor skills, you're under stress, you can't do, it's, you know, physiologically impossible, you know, so, so do the way I'm telling you, because uh, if you don't, you're not going to be able to physically under stress perform these other, you know, and it, yeah, I'm with you. I, I threw the BS flag on that as soon as I, I heard it because prior to even getting in law enforcement, I was still in just starting my competition passion. And, and I know how geeked up I got running around, you know, those first couple of matches and I managed to get the magazine out of the gun. I managed to perform reloads. I managed to do, you know, slide forward on, you know, lock back. And so right off the bat, I saw a disconnect between what I was being told in the tactical world and what I was experiencing in my own competitive world where, yeah, the stresses aren't as much, but there's still a level of stress and uh, you still have to perform, you know, these techniques. So I, I completely agree um, with that. You know, I can argue that, you know, using the overhand or the inboard method to run the slide does have a mechanical advantage because it does give the slide a little slightly more, uh, slightly longer length of travel to strip that round off the top of the magazine. And it's also universal. It's going to work with any, any semi-automatic pistol that you pick up and use. But those are the reasons you should teach that, not this whole fine versus gross motor skill. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, any semi-automatic that has some version of a slide, mm-hmm. right, whether it locks open or it doesn't, because there are a lot of pistols out there, you know, older with designs that aren't going to lock open, um, virtually all of them, grabbing the slide, getting leverage on it, manipulating is a universal technique. And so that is a good foundation to have i look at the the overhand slide release and manipulation as my second level default so primarily i'm going to train for the slide stop or the slide lock or the slide release or whatever term you want to use it right because it's faster and more efficient and one of the things you don't have necessarily in a gunfight is a lot of time so being able to perform tasks fast and efficiently is a good skill to have. So by training to use a slide stop or a slide release, I am trading some of the universal skill and I'm directing it more to a directed skill. So I'm going to be a little more efficient, but I'm going to lose some universal ability, right? but I can always default back to the universal ability. I can always grab the slide. It, it costs me a few more tenths, maybe a second to get that presentation back out. But when it comes to gunfighting and to a lesser degree competition, you want to be as streamlined and as efficient as possible. And using a slide stop allows you to do that. And the fact that it's occurring every day in video now, we have so much more video than we did back in the 90s of actual gunfights where you can see officers reloading and you see them using slide stops. 
you know, you see them using sites, you know, you see them clearing malfunctions, all this stuff, you know, that on some level were deemed um, gross motor skills, you know, and they shouldn't work under stress, but here they are in real world practicality and they're working. So, so yeah, that's, that's one of those things I find those are, those are instructors that um, basically don't want to answer the questions. They, they don't have the background. You know, somebody says, well, um, why can't I use the slide stop? And they just default to the, well, it's gross motor skills and it's physiological. And I know more than you because I'm the instructor. So your question's invalid. You can't even do it. And we just move on, you know, and that's, that's, that's not the mark of an instructor. Yeah. That, that's a mark of a, a range officer parroting what he was told because he hasn't developed his craft. Right. You know, another one that I heard uh, early on was, you know, say that uh, students out there and they're shooting actually very well and they're shooting tight groups on their target. And you would get somebody that would come down the line and they would look at it. Oh, you're, you're shooting to control. You need to speed up. And, you know, that way your, your group will open up and you'll spread the damage. Mm -hmm. And I sat there and I, I didn't respond immediately because one, I was a little bit, you know, it's like a flashbang went off in my head, you know, flashbang of stupidity. Like what? And then I thought to myself, you know, that's a piece of paper fastened to a backer that is staked to the ground. It's not going to move. If that's a real person that I'm shooting at, chances are that exact same spot's not going to be there a half second from now, a quarter of a second from now. Yeah, the whole, the target's going to be moving. We're not necessarily going to be stacking rounds in the exact same spot like we would on a stationary target. And I just thought that I don't understand the logic behind telling students that. Well, I think this comes into a larger concept and we've talked about it before and, and, and I, I suspect we'll get to it later in the discussion, but it's a concept I call of trying to force the square peg in the round hole. The square peg being the, the, the square training range, you know, where, where we work and develop our gunfighting skills and our craft. And too many instructors want to take skills and things that they do on the square range and force it to fit into the circular 360 degree world. And they want to take a big hammer and force it in there. And that's not how it works. We should be taking skills and tactics and techniques from the 360 degree real world and try to mimic them on the range. And the, I mean, I think where a lot of it goes sideways is, you know, obviously we have to try to be safe. You know, we may have people of varying skill levels that as an instructor we're responsible for, but we have to find that balance between I need to make my training as realistic as possible and as applicable as possible, but still do it in a safe way that I'm not risking unnecessarily getting my students hurt. And that's one of those, those disconnects you see between the reality of the square range and, and, and the real world. Absolutely, you're, you're spot on. No one is going to stand still and let you shoot them. And they're certainly not going to stand still and let you shoot them multiple times, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and even just the natural flinch of the body and how it twists. I mean, everything's going to be moving. You're going to be, it's going to move. So the likelihood that you're going to get two or three rounds going through the exact same hole in a real gunfight 
to even bring up the topic of, well, you need to spread it out because you're not doing any damage. It just, it shows a, a, to me, a lack of connectivity between theory and practicality. You know, in theory, yeah, that makes good sense. In practicality, it'll never happen. Yeah, and yeah, I guess this will be a good time to kind of branch off into this one thing of the whole competition and skills versus tactics. If what we're working on is the actual skill of using the firearm, well, then that's what we need to focus on at that point is the skill of using the firearm. That's a separate thing from necessarily the tactics of using a firearm. And then we can combine the two. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, even when we're doing, you know, quote, tactical training, we still have skills based drills on the tactical side. But instantly, if you mention the word competition, then they 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 don't want to put the competition technique under the skills, you know, banner, they instantly want to put it into the reality banner and then crap on it. You know, and and that's not the case. Um, I I've been fortunate enough, uh, you know, to to work with a lot of um, high speed military guys, you know, and they sought us out in the three gun community. Myself and a bunch of other high level, you know, nationally ranked competitive three gun shooters. Well, why would they do that? Clearly, we're not using any kind of tactics whatsoever. We're playing a game. But what they recognized was the skills and manipulating the guns and putting rounds on target fast and efficiently. You know, there's an old saying, speed kills. And they recognize that those skills and techniques that we were developing on the manipulation side had application in the real world side. You just had to put it in the right context. And so I've had an opportunity to work with a lot of guys that their, their way of solving a problem is calling in a JDAM or <laughs> throwing grenades, you know, but when it came to dropping the hammer on somebody, the skills and stuff that were developed on the competition side to be fashion efficient and effective, they wanted those skills and they sought us out to learn them. So there is a connection there. You just have to put it in the right context. And I think context between the competition and the combative side gets, um, gets left out a lot. And uh, I assume we're going to go into the topic that broke the internet. <laughs> well, I'm sure we will at some point because I've already touched on it a little bit. But I just I want to stay on that vein we're just on right now of the context yeah, there, there are, you can learn from the competitive side of things, the efficient way of manipulating the firearm, how to get hits at speed, etc. But that's all from that context. And sometimes you have to reverse engineer that. And what I want to tell, talk to the competition side of the house is a little bit is there, those are, that's an application, that's a skill, but you also have to factor in the real world mental processing of an event that is actually happening live and in full color in front of you and that's not the same thing as cardboard targets staked in place or on a fixed pulley system that are moving or that are popping up 
Oh yeah. No, no. The, now you're talking the difference between a one-way and a two-way range. Right. You're talking about, you know, you have stimulus, you know, the whole, um, you know, Colonel Boyd's OODA loop, processing information, you know, getting inside decision-making processes, you know, and integrating that with your skills. Yeah. Yeah. That's there. There's a little bit, um, you know, and this is a, you know, a, a topic for another discussion. Um, you know, the things that I got from competition that made me uh, the shooter I am today, as far as my skill level. Now, you can judge me of whether I'm a good shooter or whether I'm a crappy shooter, but I know what competition did for me. And one of the, um, one of the, the biggest takeaways that I got or, or things that I learned from competition was processing information. Um, when it came to manipulating the firearm, tracking the front sight, doing things, you know, running, you know, visualization techniques in competition, we call them visual tech, you know, visual, um, visualization techniques. You know, when I came up, I learned it as on the, on the, on the policing side was play the what if game, you know, you pull into like we were talking the other night, um, you know, or actually you were talking with one of your other uh, interviewees and you talked about, you know, if you pulled into a service station and you saw, you know, 10 guys milling around and you're like, Oh, I'm going right back out. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, what if game, what if I pull into a station and I see a bunch of guys milling around? Well, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere different. You know, what if you pull in, you know, and so from the policing side, we were always taught to play the what if game to try to mentally prepare us for, you know, something that surprises us, you know, so the same side is just that visualization, you know, how am I going to run this course? I want to take this target in this order. I want to do it. Yes. And it's predetermined, but you're programming a response, you know, and you still kind of do it. You just have more variables to consider on the what if side than on the visualization side, you know, but uh, like I said, that's a, that's a topic for a different, a different day, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can only, the competitive skills need to be kept in context. They're good skills to have because that's what they are. They are skills based. They are not tactics based. They're, they're generally not practical based and you're responding to an unknown stimulus that may behave in a, in a predictable or an unpredictable manner. And all that factors into the real world side that that you're not going to get on the, on the competitive side. And that changes the dynamics of what you're doing. Yeah. And, you know, Paul Howell and his book several years ago made an excellent point of how uh, Americans tend to think of, well, that person has been shot. They're out of the fight. And it goes back to the whole thing. You know, when your children and you're out playing war, if you got shot, you didn't go down. All the other children would jump you and beat you because no, 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 you were shot and you're supposed to go down. But when you go overseas, those those folks over there don't know those rules and they would keep fighting after after they got shot well you know we when we get into these whole scenarios these what ifs and all these conversations there's this general thought well I, i got my shots off in this amount of time and i got all a hits or all down zero hits whichever one you want to use that presumes that that's going to effectively stop the bad guy 
And that's just not the case. And so we can argue, well, yes, I have a sub-second draw or I have a 125 draw and I can get A zone hits doing that out to you know 10 yards and under this amount of time or whatever. Okay, the bad guy may not stop from that. No, not at all. Not at all. And, and I think as Americans, a lot of that conditioning comes from the movies. Mm -hmm. you say what is good or bad. Every movie I see, bad guys take like one hit to go down. Good guys, right. man, we can soak them up. And then yeah. even when, when something bad, you know, happens to a good guy, I still have a good 30 seconds to say my final goodbyes. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, motivate people to, to go on and live in my memory, you know, and, uh, you know, but yeah. And, uh, that, that first shot's awesome. It is. And it's awesome if you put it dead center of the A zone, right? It's going to be a little less awesome if the guy you just tagged is wearing body armor and you just hit him in the trauma plate and it did nothing other than feel like he got hit with a hammer, right? So that first shot, having that, is that a good skill to have? Yeah, I want to have that skill. But that is that is one shot, you know, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, you know, my philosophy on gunfighting is gunfighting is problem solving at speed, right? You have problems and you need to solve them in a fast and efficient manner. Now, the majority of your problems aren't shooting solutions. A lot of times they could be, you know, tactical based. They can be ge uh, geometry based. You know, how do I clear this tight corner? How do I maneuver around here? How do I approach this? You know, how am I going to walk up on this car? You know, how am I going to breach this door? You know, um, so, I mean, there's always problems to solve and not all of them are pulling a trigger, right? But the big thing with solving problems is you need to solve them before they solve you. And that first round dead center, man, that was good. But have I solved that problem? <laughs> no, because he's still standing there and he still has a weapon. Right. So I need to keep solving that problem and not admire my work. I, I just had a flashback to a day we were on the range and uh, <laughs> solving problems. Well, Eric, you can always just never go to the left and just always go around to the right of the barricade. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my favorite instructor. Yes. Yes. So uh, he shall, and I've given him away. He is a he and he shall remain nameless. Um, but yes, I, um, uh, I enjoy watching his videos because, uh, some of his stuff is, uh, is definitely comic relief. And some of it was, uh, was, was, wow, real light bulb moments that, uh, you know, when you're working on a barricade and, um, you know, as a right-handed shooter with a rifle, you're trying to go around the left side, which is awkward, right? So his solution was, well, just go around the other side of the barricade. So fortunately, um, he lives in a world where there's only right side walls, that there are no <laughs> left walls, left doors or anything like that. So I was, yes, I, we did have a good laugh about that. So, yeah. And that's just one of the things of context and, you know, background. Yeah. And, and having the skills and knowledge, you know, I can go out and I can set up problems that can be solved in my Okay, this is what I want to go teach. So I'm going to set up problems where what I teach solves all these problems. Yes. But that may not be preparing my students to 
solve what problems they may face. No, and that 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 is a a a good example of what we talked about um, taking a square range mentality and trying to squeeze it into the round world, you know, circle. You know, okay, so let's give them a little bit of credit and let's say, okay, is there is there situations where you could do that? Well, sure, I could be working around a vehicle, you know, and I could be trying to work around the left side of the vehicle, which causes some some technique problems for me because I'm a right-handed shooter. I either have to switch hands, I have to expose more, you know, um, you know, so I have some solutions and it's easier for me as a right-handed shooter to go around the right side of the car. Well, if I have that option and I haven't already cranked a bunch of rounds from the one position, I don't want to go back to that position. I want to alternate that. Well, that's an option and that's great. But if I'm coming down a hallway and I've got a, room on the right side i can't go on the other side <laughs> you know unless he's you know unless the idea is well i'm going to run across the danger area really quick like a rabbit and then i can come back and turn my back to the area that i haven't cleared yet so i can clear this area from the right side you know what i mean so once again the context and i'll give them a little bit there's certain contexts where yeah if you have the option you can go around the other side of the barricade and make it easier on yourself. But I think, like you said, you're doing your students a disservice by not showing them how to make the tough shot, to how to use the tough technique, to how to switch shoulders, to if you're not going to switch shoulders, how to, how to negotiate, solve this problem without transitioning the weapon to your, your weak side or your offside. You know, that's a skill. That's an instructor. That is what you have to be able to do. So it comes down to, you know, kind of, you know, what is your focus as an instructor? And I always tell them, my job is to make you individually a better shooter. My job isn't to make you shoot like me. And my job isn't to make you use my system. I'm going to expose you to my system because I do things for, for very specific reasons and why I think they're effective. But if my system or my technique doesn't work for you as an instructor, I always want to have two or three or four backups that I can show you different ways of doing things so you as an individual can maximize your performance. That is my ultimate goal, to make you a better shooter. And unfortunately, there's a lot of instructors out there that don't develop their craft. They don't have that, that deep background or that deep bench to go to a different technique if it doesn't work for somebody. And they're stuck in their system so much that this is the way that this is my system, this way I'm going to do it. I don't care whose system it is. And we've had this conversation. I will steal from everyone out there and beg borrow. Now, the one thing I will do is I will absolutely give credit who I took it from. But if I can put that into my inventory and make myself and develop my craft as a better instructor and new technique or a new weapon system comes along or a new way of manipulating something that has merit and it's fast and efficient and it's legit, then I'm absolutely going to put it in my rotation. I'm going to show it to my students and I'm absolutely going to give credit to who I took it from. And we just, you just don't see a lot of instructors. Uh, well, let me say that. There's a lot of instructors that don't, don't have that view, you know, and, and, and that comes, comes down to, you know, you got to find guys that, uh, you know, kind of evaluating instructors. There's no grading system. There's, there's no ranking. 
you know, so these are some things that you should be considering when you're watching an instructor's videos or, you know, at his website, you know, these are things that you should be looking for, you know, is he more about making you a better shooter or is he more teaching you about his system so he can brand you and promote you in his system? Right. And as far as attribution and, you know, giving credit for where material came from, I think sometimes as people, they just don't know. Yeah, I think that's either, fair. Either they're choosing not to, or they just don't know where something came from. And if they don't know where something came from, that's kind of a telltale sign as well. Yeah, I can see that um, when it comes to very specific things, mm -hmm. you know, like a very highly developed technique. Now, obviously, there's, there's things like, okay, well, who developed the original tactical reload? Well, I don't know. And since that time, we've developed six variations of it. Mm -hmm. Right. But if there is a specific variation that I saw the specific person, and he may not have developed it, right, but he's the person that I learned it from. So he's going to get the credit from me. I'm not going to go through him. He's where I got it. It's up to him to promote where he got it from. Right. I don't, I don't need to do that research. Right. But, um, you know, kind of one of the, uh, you know, if, if I had my Mount Rushmore, uh, one of the names absolutely would be the first one up there is uh, Mike Seeklander for me. Um, I've known Mike for years. We came up together. We worked together at the U.S. Shooting Academy. Um, I did some adjunct instructing for him for several years. And we, I mean, I can't say enough good things about Mike and his skills and, and what he does as an instructor. And one of his phrases that he uses all the time when we talk about, because Mike is in that unique position, you know, he's a, he was a police officer. He's a, one of the highest level competition shooters out there. Um, you know, he was a former Marine, you know, so he's another one of those guys that can play on either side of that fence on the competition side or on the, on the, on the serious social side. And Mike appreciates this same topic. And, and I, don't necessarily want to speak for him, but I think I can, in that he sees the value of the competitive side. And he has a, a term that he calls the, the combative applications of competitive processes. And I use that term all the time. And when we get into these discussions about where I got techniques and why I do them and why you should try them, I always use that phrase and I always give my credit for it because that's where I, I learned it from. And I think it's absolutely applicable in, in what in what we're doing right um i guess while we're on on that vein instructor bios you, you mentioned something when we were sitting we're setting up before we went live if you're looking on somebody on an instructor's web page and they're trying to play this cryptic game of i can't tell you where i've trained or, or all this kind of stuff that may be a red flag yeah, yeah, there's, um, you know, these guys either don't put them up there, or, you know, they put, you know, State Department, or they'll put, you know, OGA, you know, it's just, th there's no shame in putting, you know, your bio up there, people are paying for your expertise, right, they want to know what they're, what they're paying for is what they're getting, you know, if you don't feel that you have that strong of, of a bio for what you're trying to do, then go out and train more, you know, be a better instructor, continue to develop your craft. You know, one of the 
one of the other things I, I would look for is how recently have they gone out and trained? You know, uh, you and I are big on this, you know, developing your craft. It, it, so I liken it to martial arts, right? And everyone thinks that black belt is once you get to your black belt, you've achieved it. You know, you're, you're there, you're in the black belt club. And all these guys will tell you is no, once you're a black belt, now you're ready to learn. <laughs> and it's, it's that mentality, you know, it's, it's a never ending process. It's a lifestyle. There's always new equipment. There's always new skills out there. There's always new, new ways of doing things that people innovate. And you have to stay on that. It's like like having a legal refresher for law enforcement. You know, every year we have to get our legal updates because the laws have changed. Well, as an instructor, every year new things are coming out, new technologies coming out. You know, the proliferation now of using night vision and IR lasers and, and thermals and all the stuff that was that was in the past because of their expense stayed on the military side not only are now they starting to come into the, the law enforcement side, but they're becoming hugely popular on the civilian side, you know? And if you don't have experience with this stuff as an instructor, you need to, to develop your craft. There's a whole new world of technology out there that you have to have a background in to, to train your people that you come across somebody and all of a sudden they're using, even if it's just cheap, Russian surplus night vision, the advantage that that's going to give them in a low light situation against your responding guys is tremendous. And they better understand the capabilities and limitations of those systems so that they know how to, how to, how to deal with them, how they know how to solve those problems, you know, but that all comes back to just, you know, the instructor bios. If, if, if they won't disclose where they're at, or they won't, you know, let to see, hey, here's my credentials. I'd find another instructor. And to your, just your example that you just gave, it doesn't have to necessarily be something as exotic as night vision. Appendix carry. I'm not a person who carries in the appendix carry method, but I got several appendix holters and I worked them with a blue gun. So I would learn the techniques and I spent some time with some appendix carry advocates okay what do i need to be dealing with here what do i need to know what do i need to be watching for as far as problems go from when i have students that come through that are in the classes carrying appendix and i you know when i had a student show up on a line that was in his 70s that was carrying an appendix and carrying with a red dot i love well i guess i gotta learn both of these mm -hmm. you know yeah. i i, I, I learned i spent a lot of time on learning how to run a red dot because they're not going away folks it's not a fad no, not at all. And in fact, um, oh God, who was it? Um, Aaron Cowan, I think from mm -hmm. Sage Dynamics. Um, I had seen one of his videos or a discussion somewhere sometime about something. And um, the topic came up about red dots and it was, are you still running red dot site classes? And his response was no, because everybody coming to class is running a red dot. We're, we're going to get to that tipping point in the pendulum where you're going to have us as instructors may have to start offering iron sight only classes <laughs> because everybody's running red dots now, 
you know, and, and that, and that's a good thing, right? And, you know, the red dot cycle and pistol, that's a, mm-hmm. you know, a different discussion, you know, of, of, you know, what I think of those. Um, but as an instructor developing my craft, I need to be versatile and I need to be well-versed in how to run those systems. That's new technology. I've got to keep up so much so that I, uh, now I've run red dots on pistol from the competition side. So I've had years of running open guns with red dot sites. So I've already familiar with them, but I never really had one set up for serious social or tactical training. Well, I just remedied that a, a couple of weeks ago, you know, and I just finally picked up, um, you know, a pistol, uh, and, and mounted a red dot site. I've been doing work with that on the tactical side, you know, and kind of just refreshing those skills, um, that I had learned, you know, shooting competitively, but it, it, you make a good point in that it still just comes back to developing your craft as an instructor. Like I'm not a left-handed rifle shooter, but as an instructor, I need to know all the left-handed techniques because I'm going to have lefties that come in the class and I just can't tell them, well, switch to the right shoulder. You know, I, so as an instructor, you know, my, one of my own personal weaknesses, like tremendously weak is I don't know the first thing about revolvers. I mean, here's what I know. I, you hand me a revolver. It's going to take me five minutes to figure out how to get the magazine in, you know? Um, so that is a huge hole in my individual and in my skill sets as an instructor. Now, fortunately, I don't run those type of classes, or if I do run a concealed carry tactics class, I have been fortunate that I really haven't had a revolver guy come in. And on the one or two occasions I did have a revolver, what we were working wasn't a high level revolver class where I could still show him the reloads and the concepts and, you know, so there, but when it comes to, you know, guys like to, to be in one of your revolver only classes or Tom Givens or something like that, that would be something that I would jump into the class. In fact, I've even been looking kind of keep an eye to the, you know, the, the used market. If I come across the right revolver that I would pick it up simply to help start working on some of my revolver skills. Cause I, I have none. I mean, I'm, I'm totally, it reminds me of, um, reminds me of a joke that, uh, I always thought was funny. So you remember the old Superman movies mm-hmm. with the old black and white one, you know, and dun, dun, dun. I, it always struck me as funny that, you know, and the fedoras and then, and, and their suits and stuff. And they all had their little five shot chiefs and, you know, and, you know, Superman would land and, you know, give up, you know, and these guys would start shooting at him with the revolvers and he'd just stand there duh, 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 and then they throw the gun at him and he'd duck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? I'm like, um, somebody on that technical consultant team there needs a, yeah. <laughs> needs a revision, but, uh, but yeah, that's what I'd have to do. You hand me a revolver, I'm throwing it at the dude because yeah. I just, I just don't have that skill set. But, uh, but that comes back to, you know, it's, it's a lifestyle as an instructor, you know, it's, uh, you just have to continually develop your craft. And I, I just see there's a lot of, I won't say a lot there. I've just seen guys in the younger generations and even in, in your, my generation that don't do that. You know, they've kind of feel like they've made it, they've gotten their black belt and they teach what they know and they stay in that box and they never try to expand that box. What I think we see is a bunch of firearms instructors that have maybe a maybe maybe a blue belt running around out, 
claiming themselves to be firearms instructors they're not even close even approaching the black belt um but you know we were just talking about revolvers but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that far out of the norm uh traditional double action mm-hmm. you know we're in a striker fired world yeah but you know there's a renaissance of beretta products you know thankfully you know because of ernest langdon um and, and all of his his acolytes but you've got yeah there's still a bunch of sigs out there running around 226s 228s 229s and occasionally those things pop up well if all you've ever experienced as an instructor is a striker fired system okay there are some different nuances and techniques that need to be in place with someone who's running a traditional double action pistol mm-hmm. yeah it, no completely agree it's um and I, I came up under double actions. You know, I came up on six. And to this day, um, a SIG 226 always feels like I'm coming home. It never feels uncomfortable in my hand. Um, so much so that I still have a couple. And uh, I will, as much as, and even with as refined as some of the striker fire triggers have now gotten, you know, uh, most notably, you know, the Walther series, um, uh, the CZs you know, some of those striker fire triggers have gotten to be, you know, I think about as close to a single action hammer fired system as you're practically going to get with a polymer striker system. I mean, they've gotten really, really good compared to, you know, the early 2000s when all you had were just Glocks with five and a half triggers and and everybody was running over baby carriages to get the, uh, you know, the, uh, the different connectors you know, to drop from a, from a five pound trigger to a, a four pound or what they called a three and a half, which was, I'd like to see their, their trigger measuring gauge because every three and a half pound trigger pull is still five to me. But uh, yeah, and I'll take a single action trigger, not just 19, but on a, a double single platform, whether it's a Beretta, whether it's a SIG, I'll take that single action trigger all day long. And if all I got to do is fight through one bad double action trigger, you know, I can do that right? Because I can still shoot single action hammer triggers, arguably better than I can ever shoot striker guns, you know, and it's, it's just me individually, but yeah, but that, that still comes back to being able to do that. And, and a lot of this generation can't, they, they, they don't have any experience with a double action, single action system. What did you do whenever you came off of a array of targets with that double action gun though? Oh yeah. You always, for me, I was, you always got a decock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i gotta decock it what do you gotta do before you go back to the holster oh god uh you gotta decock it yeah always and if that's not something you're just absolutely maniacal about habituating in and you're not insisting that your students every time they come off an array of targets that they do that decock you're reinforcing bad habits absolutely and life that comes life-threatening habits yes you know um you know the kind of habits that uh you know will get you a limp permanently and uh yeah but i mean but that comes to running your system you know um you know glocks you know gotta have your finger off the trigger when you're reholstering i mean how many times have we seen guys trying to jam a glock back in holster you know speed reholstering which has very very limited applicability and they get a finger caught in the way, even in a striker fire, and it goes off, you know, so, but that's learning that system, you know, get your thumb on the back of the slide, you know, 
extend the finger, you know, reholster properly. It's the same. You can almost argue it's the same technique where with Glocks, you know, I teach the guys to run the thumb on the back of that slide, right? So that they aren't pushing out a battery or, you know, some issue like that. Same thing with the SIGs, you know, or the Berettas, you know, take notice. It's just learning how to run the system. It's, it's a 1911, you know, instead of decocking, I've got to engage the safety, you know, so that's just part of as a, as a, an operator learning your individual system, you know, and, uh, but yeah, that's, that's another complicated, that was one of the reasons for the, uh, you know, the, the meteoric rise of the Glock to begin with was that it wasn't two different trigger systems. There were no safeties you had to put on or forget to, 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 to take off. There were no buttons to, you know, decock. It was stupidly simple. You know, it was as safe as any gun out there. It had the same trigger and all you had to do was, was turn it on and turn it off. And that was it, you know, and, uh, but yeah, I'm still, you know, I guess, I guess, uh, I'm that older generation, man. I will, uh, you put a SIG and a Glock on the table. I'll probably grab the SIG. Yeah. Well, you know, you did listen to me and finally solve the question of which Glock connector is the best one out there. And the CZ. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I do have to say after, uh, after shooting your, uh, your P10C, I was uh, suitably impressed that uh, I had to go out and buy one. So, yes, as as part of setting up my uh, my red dot system, I chose a, a CZ P10F. So I got the full size because I'm a big guy. So I like uh, you know big guns, and uh, so I went the full size. But I I would be lying if I haven't said I've been I've been a couple of a uh, couple of P10Cs I saw in the used market that I was like, well, maybe I should, and. Uh, but no, I've held off on those, but, uh, but yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic system. Like I said, it's, it's got a, uh, one of the nicest striker fire triggers. Um, and, uh, I look forward to doing some real work with it and seeing what, what I can really do with it. And yeah, that comes from being exposed to, to you and getting out and trying somebody else's gun, keeping open mind, realizing that I needed, um, to improve that aspect of my craft for my students and, and, and making it happen. All right. Now, instructors and their individual craft and skill sets. What do you think of an instructor who's afraid to stand up and demonstrate their craft and skill set in front of a bunch of students? <laughs> now, I, here's, here's how I, I I'll relate that to you. Um, I generally think dogs are a very good judge of character. And if a dog doesn't like you, then I probably don't like you. If you're an instructor that won't get up and demonstrate what you're teaching, it kind of falls into that mentality. Like, yeah, um, I'm suspicious of you right away. You know, your credibility has taken a hit to me. Um, Because from a craft and a professional point of view, a demonstration, a physical demonstration is just part of the learning process. You know, I'm going to tell you about a technique and why we want to do it, give you the foundations. I'm going to break the technique down into its components and show it to you. Well, part of that demonstration, that live fire, is putting everything together so they can see what could be a longer, complicated technique process. For example, um, think about clearing a, um, a, a double feed on a, on a handgun. 
of all the steps we have to go through, whatever your technique is, there's some version of, I've got to lock the slide. I've got to rip the magazine. I've got to clear the obstruction. I've got to reload the gun. So there are several steps in that technique that I can show you individually. And let's say there's five or six different points in the technique I'm showing you. And then to just turn around and say, okay, go on the line and go work it and never see it from beginning to end how it's supposed to flow and how it works, you know, I think, I think you're doing a disservice to the learning process from the, from the, the learning side of teaching somebody something they haven't done before. You know, now, having said that, the, the, the main criticism I've heard from, from primarily one well-known instructor is that he chooses, and I'm going to, you know, hopefully put some accurate words in his mouth uh his position is basically that instructor demos are nothing more than a way for the instructor to show off to the students and with the to a degree i can agree with him right the purpose of a demonstration is not for me to show you how fast i can do it it's to show you what the whole process should look like when I take all the segments and I put them together and coming from my background, you know, where, you know, being a high level competition guy, speed was everything in my technique, you know, not just doing sub-second draws, trying to do sub-second reloads. You know, when you're doing things that fast, you're trying to perform at hundred percent of your ability. When I'm the instructor world, my job is to take all the segments and put them together in one solid flowing technique so a student can see how it is. So for me, and what I tell even the other instructors that I'm mentoring or working with when I'm doing instructor development classes is your 50% speed is still going to be faster than their 100% speed. So there's no need for you to do it super fast or to show off because that's not the purpose of it. So when they say, if you don't have the right instructor, an instructor gets a little bit of ego and lets his own ego get in the way and wants to show how fast he can do it because he thinks doing it fast makes him look like a better instructor, then he's missing the big picture. And it comes back to, it's not about making them shoot like you, it's about making them a better shooter. And to make them a better shooter, you absolutely have to slow your demos down, even whatever is the speed type technique, to allow them to understand and learn what you're trying to do. And if, if to me, if an instructor won't do a demo, then he's leaving out, you know, as human beings, we process so much information visually. And if you don't show me a technique and do a demo on it, I think you're leaving out one third of the learning process between telling, showing, and demonstrating. And to me, that makes you, a poor instructor and you know so if i know a guy and he's just like no he doesn't do demos i'm gonna be like find somebody else that's my recommendation i'm not saying he's a bad guy i'm just saying yeah i'd i'd, I'd put my money somewhere else yeah and it's not necessarily has to be the shooting or you're showing people oh look how good i can do this i think the reason to do demos is to clear up misunderstandings because I, I've heard an instructor give a list, you know, set of instructions, and then they go to do the demo, 
And what I was visualizing as they were giving the instructions was not what they did when they performed their demo. Go, oh, that's what the, they meant by that. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten to the point where in my classes, I even demonstrate the initial unload and show clear check at the beginning of a class. Yeah. Because there were things that I just thought that they were understood and that they were universal. Well, folks, there's no universal terminology or technique. You know, I would tell people to have the line, all right, without removing the pistol from the holster, reach back and take the magazine out of the pistol. There were people that couldn't do that. They had no idea of how to do, how to do that. Mm -hmm. And so now I get everybody up on, you know, say I put them on the seven and I go up on the three and I, folks, this is what, how, when I tell you to do this, this is what I want you to do. And I demonstrate reaching back, sticking my thumb down and, and hitting the magazine release button, popping the magazine out, taking it out and then stowing that magazine. That's how I want you to accomplish this. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't work for people with paddle mag releases. Okay. Yeah, you, know, no, you gotta you gotta you gotta make adjustments for that. And then I'll show all the other processes of that unload and show clear. And then I go back around behind the line and then I give the instructions to do it. Yeah, and uh and I think it comes down to um on some level I think that it's a confidence issue for instructors in that there's maybe they feel like if they don't nail the demo one hundred percent perfectly that somehow it hurts their credibility uh -huh. or it makes them look like less of an instructor if they can't do it perfectly all the time. Right. And <laughs> we have both been on the line with each other when we have messed up demos and there's no shame in it. Cause I'll just turn around and be like, and guys, that's why I keep practicing because uh -huh. as good as, as you may think I am, I still miss or I still make mistakes. Right. right. So I am still working to be a better shooter and it's a never ending process and, and make that a teaching point mm -hmm. absolutely you know, diagnose what you did wrong or have the students diagnose what you did wrong absolutely. and then and then use that to teach teach from mm -hmm. yeah and so i mean maybe it's some of that but yeah if you're if you're an instructor and you won't demo yeah nope all right you used a phrase last night when we were talking that, that i want to work into the conversation here and you something to the effect of yes that is one window of application but i'm looking at a skyscraper full of windows yeah, we'll, yeah so, elaborate on that yeah so this is going to lead into our our sub second draw that broke your internet and uh so and and i've got to work this in right so i have to since we're going to talk about competition stuff so I need to put on my competition shirt here and, and put it instead of switching hats, I need to switch shirts. Right. But uh, no. And so um, I found it interesting in your previous discussions with other, other people, um, you know, the, the idea of the sub-second reload and its value um, and the battle between the, the competitive, you know, environment, the competitive side guys and the tactical side guys. And, and, you know, one of the things that I would offer up in that discussion is context because context is important. So is a sub second draw a good skill to have? I think it is right within a certain context, right? If I'm walking up on a car as a law enforcement officer and I ask for, Hey, this is why I stopped you. And you, and, I, and you see your license registration. Oh yeah, officer, no problem. 
and he reaches down behind his his in his console and he starts coming around with a pistol well one now we're already talking about this isn't the way competition works right this is the two-way range this is the real world i have to react to that stimulus i'm already behind him in the shooting curve because action is faster than reaction he is inside my OODA loop and I've got to do something to get ahead of him in that decision-making curve, right? At that exact moment, when that pistol's coming out and you recognize that this is a shoot situation, it's deadly force, and I need to, you know, the green, the, the go signal has started. Would you rather have a 0.7 first shot or would you rather have a 1.3 first shot? Because a half a second is a lifetime right there, right? So within that specific context, that's a good skill to have, right? But it has a very limited window of application. And I use these windows of application. Um, for example, uh, we're in a QT or a 7-Eleven and something happens. Well, you know what? I'm not starting a gunfight in a QT if I don't absolutely have to, right? Let them do their thing. But if they start rounding people up and they start moving us back into the freezer and then ostensibly I've made a determination that the reason they're moving us in the freezer is because they're going to eliminate all the witnesses and, you know, inside the freezer won't we'll make noise. And then instantly now this becomes a shoot situation. I'm looking for that one fraction of a second where that guy's distracted, where I can start my concealed draw, whether it's appendix or however it is. Within that specific context, is a sub-second draw a good thing to have? Absolutely, right? But the context is, and where I said that was, that is a good skill to have within a small window of application, but I live in a skyscraper full of windows. So there's a lot of other windows that I need to put time in training that may be more important than this window. Is it important? Within that context, dramatically important. But in the view of looking at a 30-story skyscraper with 500 windows, well, I better not put all of my training time into one window or else, you know, I'm going to find myself at a disadvantage. And that's kind of just where I come down the sub second. It's a good skill to have, but keep it in the context of when you're going to use it. I would argue in the traffic stop scenario that you outlined that you're perhaps better off attacking the pistol instead of trying to outdraw it. Sure, sure. Yeah. Now that we're getting into yeah. tactics and, you know, you know, attacking the pistol may be an option. Um, you know, but now we're, we're getting into a, a different, right. you know, we were talking purely skills. Mm -hmm. Here's the situation. Here's the skill. Whatever the, the, the combative application has become, it's become a shooting situation. For whatever right. reason, you discounted the attack the pistol, right? right? And so within, once again, but once again, that's another mm -hmm. option. You, that's, right. a, that's a different way of solving that problem. And remember what I said before, gunfights are problem solving at speed, yep. right? And there's many ways to solve that problem. But now within this, the context of that sub-second skill, yes. So is it important yeah. to have? Yes, because speed kills, right? Yeah. But I'm not putting in 90% of my training time for that one window in a skyscraper window. Right. Um, the scenario that you outlined as far as like in the convenience store, 
And I'm going to give a big plug here for John Murphy of FPF Training, uh, because the concept I'm fixing to, to kind of go to is one of the things he spends a lot of time on in his classes is you have windows of opportunity. You know, you just, you just hit on it there. You're being rounded up, you know, move to the cooler. Well, we have a saying, never get taken to crime scene number two. Mm, yes. Yeah. yeah. Never get saved. Claude Warner, venerable firearms instructor has a t-shirt says that when they go for the duct tape, it's time to make your move. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you're looking for, all right, I've made the decision that it's go time. Now it's when do, when do I go? All right, I'm looking for that application. Well, you got to know your skill set mm-hmm. and your skill set on demand. And you know, like what John likes to say in his classes, if you have a two-second skill but a one-second window, that one-second window is not the time to deploy that two-second skill, and I'm paraphrasing. But if you have a 1.5-second skill and you have a two-second window open up, that's when you would deploy. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that's a very elegant way of putting that. You know, um, you have to have an appreciation, a realistic appreciation for what you can do on demand, and when is your when's your moment? You know, you've made a determination that you need a moment because it's gotten to that point. So when is your moment? Huh. And then doing that decisively, and you know, and other factors come into to, to solving that problem. Um, but yeah, I think that's a very eloquent way of putting that. Uh, one last thing uh, on slaying the parrot that we've been doing. Today. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. One of the things that I hear get brought up by people that I, I refer to them as not being in the know is they'll talk about, Oh, you won't have time to see your sites mm-hmm. or you won't, or you won't be able to do this or you won't be able to do that in a gunfight. Well, I would argue that if you haven't trained to do it, you're not going to be able to do it under any circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the best time to learn a skill is not the time that you need it. Right. <laughs> we want to want to train ahead of time. Um, but, yeah, this idea of, of if I understand, you know, your, your position correctly, yeah. you were talking about being able to see the front sight in, yeah. in, a, in a fight. Um, You know, for me, it becomes how I like to phrase it is depending upon the situation, like, like for me, and here's a, you know, another, uh, I don't know if you know, a myth in the industry or, or what it is. Um, some of those things that, you know, parroting, right. Um, you don't want to close one eye when you're shooting because you're cutting down half of your tactical awareness and all this other stuff. You know, and it's funny you mentioned the word pirate or parrot because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's not like I'm going to close one eye and run around like a pirate. You know, <laughs> it's I'm going to close my one eye. I'm going to focus on the, the sites. I'm going to engage the threat. And then instantly I'm going to open up the eye. And the magical thing about vision is it works instantly. Right. There's no warm up. It's not like when you open up your eyes, you need six or seven seconds for that processor to spin up, right? And it's just slowly fading in. You know, you close your eye, it's dark. You open your eye, you see everything you want to see. So the idea that um, somehow if you 
close one eye for the the time it takes to to, to focus on a front sight for a precision or a, pre, a precise type shot. That somehow during that micro amount of time, you're going to get flanked or something else is going to happen that if you had had both eyes open, you would have seen it and been able to solve that problem. Is I, I just don't buy that. So for me, um, and it's just the way I was brought up and the way I was learned. And, you know, and uh, also for me, medically, um, I have a, my eyes are out of whack. So I have a very dominant right eye, but I have a weak eye. For a long time there, I was 2015 in my right eye, but I was 2030 in my left. But it never affected me because I'm closing an eye looking through a scope or I'm closing an eye looking through a red dot or I've closed my eye when I needed to make a precision shot with a pistol. It always worked for me. So to be able to do that, but now ups close high speed, you know, we're talking inside five yards, chances are both my eyes are open, right? Am I focusing with a hard focus on the front sight at five yards? Not necessarily. And what I'll, I'll tell you is I may not necessarily be focusing on the front sight, but I'm aware of it is where it is in relation to the target and, and the other sights on the gun. So I guess it comes down to um, when it comes to seeing the sights and using the sights and, and later on processing the information that you're getting back from the sights of what's happening. Um, I see what I need to see to get the hit I want to get, right? So if it's a, there are certainly times where at five yards, I may end up closing my eye to make a precise shot. You know, your typical um, hostage headshot, you know, the guy's, you know, right here and he's just peeking out. And for whatever reason, you know, we can craft the circumstances. I have to take that shot. Well, yeah, that's a precise shot. Very close. I may have to take it, right? These bad guys, they don't want to get shot any more than we do. So they're ducking and sneaking and peeking. A six-yard precision shot may be this guy is just sticking his head above the windshield of a car in a parking lot. And the only thing I have to shoot at his head. Now I'm only five yards away, but it's, it's still technically a precision shot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I may end up closing my eye because that's what I need to see to get the hit I want to get. And so the level of how I focus on that front sight is going to range everything from super hard focus to I'm aware of where it's at, but it's good enough to get the hit I want and everything in between. But I'm still using them in some level. Right. If I've got it, say, I'm going to say full value. And by that, I mean, you know, guy squared up to me and I've got his whole upper body. I don't necessarily have to have that hard focus, as you say, on the front sight. If I get my pistol between my him and me in my eye line, the alignment of the pistol tells me if I'm good to go or not. Mm. If I'm not seeing sides of the pistol top of the slide or whatever, just in that fraction of a second that I'm getting into my eye line, all right, that was good enough to go to get that shot. But that same guy at 17 yards, okay, now I've got to drill down into, into you know, being on that front side to make that shot because I just can't do it with that same, you know, just getting the pistol in my eye line and getting the pistol into your eye line and being able to use the gun. That's not unsighted fire folks. That is sighted fire. It just may not be a hard focus on the front side fire. Yeah. I completely agree with that. And uh, you know, I've tested the skills in force on force. Now, yes, yeah, not a real gunfight, but 
they're not going to pass me and give me my certificate at the end of this class that my whole agency knows that I'm gone to. <laughs> that, that's a bit of stress. Um, you know, and that's getting out and testing your skills and that's going from the square range into a, to a 360 range environment where there are consequences for missing other than I didn't win this stage. Yeah, no, completely agree. You know, it's, it's funny that leads into, you talk about the parroting, you know, another one I hear all the time is, um, you know, and it's, it's one of the things that as instructors, we can sit down at the bar, have a couple of beers and discuss right? Because I can see valid points to both. But um, the example would be, you're not supposed to look at your gun when you're doing an emergency reload. You're supposed to keep your eyes on the threat, right? Okay, well, that's a position. I disagree with it, right? And I disagree with it because once again, it comes back to um, being fast and efficient. So what am I trading, right? I'm going to trade taking my eyes potentially off, you know, somebody who's a threat, right? And look at the bottom of, of, of the pistol in a magazine, and I'm going to shift my focus to here, even if my head's down for half a second, just to make sure that I can guide it in. And then once it's, it's starting to seed in, then the rest of that process, I'm going to get my head back up. So let's say I even bobble the reload right? Let's, let's say I fumble it and I'm at one and a half seconds. Let's push it up to two seconds, right? Realistically, what am I, what am I giving up, right? I'm giving up two seconds and knowing where the bad guy is and what he's doing to make my reload faster, more efficient, because it does me no good if I keep my eyes on him and it takes me six seconds of doing this, I'm like, okay, well, I saw him the whole time, but I can't do anything about him, right? And I'm going to trade one or two seconds or a quick glance just to get it started to make this faster and more efficient so I can get back in that fight. The idea or the concept that somehow he's going to see me look down at the pistol and not have my eyes on him and be able to maneuver in a position to take advantage of that before I get the gun back loaded up. I just don't see it. Show it to me. Show me your evidence. Cause I've, I've, I've role played and I've been in simunitions hundreds of times for multiple agencies. I've been bad guys for special forces and SOCOM guys, you know, and I've been on, on the good guy side. I have never seen a single time, even across a room where I was able to take advantage of somebody that I knew was reloading because I just couldn't get there in time. I couldn't take advantage of that information, even if I was looking for it and be like, you and I are in a room. I know you only have five rounds in that gun. And the second I count five rounds, I'm going to rush you because I know you're reloading. And it, it, it just, it just doesn't happen that way. So the idea of, I want to keep my eyes on the threat. And, and this kind of, we talk about critically thinking about as instructors, what are we telling our people, Right. What does this imply? And there, there's another part here to this, this example that no one ever discusses, which is the disconnect between, well, I should reload behind cover. Well, if I'm reloading behind cover, how can I see him? <laughs> right? right? And if I can see him, sight is a two-way street. I'm not behind <laughs> cover. I'm not behind cover. And so being able to keep my eyes on him with an unloaded gun just means that I can watch him shoot me. Yeah. 
And I don't know if that's a success to solving that problem. You know, so it's this idea of, well, you got to keep your eyes on the threat. Well, if my eyes are on him, his eyes are on me and I have an empty gun and he's still shooting. I might want to get behind cover, you know? So it was, um, you know, it's just one of those disconnects that gets parroted, you know, and I don't say all instructors, obviously, yeah. you know, but I, I hear that in the training community, you know, keep, you know, don't look at the gun, keep your eyes on the threat. Why? I'll trade a second to get a, a second and a half reload, as opposed to five or six seconds fumbling, trying to get a magazine and a gun, just so I keep my head up so you can shoot it and I can see you shoot me. You know, to me, like I said, but it's, it's parroted. I'm sure you've heard it. It's parroted in the community, but has anyone really stopped and critically thought about what are we telling our people? I mean, does this make sense? You know, and once again, I think it's, I think that was somebody's doctrine. Some instructor somewhere was like, oh, this Mm -hmm. tactically, you know, in a discussion we're having makes sense. I'm going to take that square range skill and I'm going to pound it into the the circular hole and make it work. And, and, And it just doesn't, you know, and that's. You know, so critically think about what you're doing as an instructor. Do these things really make sense? Break it down. If I can see him, he can see me, and I've got an empty gun. That's not a good position for me to be in. Yeah, and that brought to mind one other thing on relays. There was a, thankfully, in my area, a very short-lived school of thought that was trying to be introduced, and I don't know if it's still alive out there somewhere. or I'm just running in a different circle now, and I don't see it anymore. Uh, individuals were teaching that during the reload and for those of you that are listening to this on podcast you can't see it but yeah you bring the gun up in front of your face with the (laughs) turn so that you could watch the bad guy through your trigger trigger, yeah as you were conducting the reload (laughs) okay that is a pure square range that is a that's a guy that that wants to straddle the fence you know that's a guy that can't pick a lane right it's either look at the gun or don't look at the gun and he's like you know what i'm gonna do both and what you end up doing is not really looking at the gun and not really looking at the guy and and if the guy's moving are you like trying to keep him camera framed in the trigger guard yeah yeah and that was one of those were like I was on the firing line and like the first time they had us do it, I, I tried it one time just, just to see it. I'm like, yeah, no, no, and no, no. And because, I mean, once again, I mean, if you have to, you're interrupting your vision, like your line of sight, right. I'm going to put a big blocky object in front of it. And then somehow like a little telescope, I've got a, you know, I am losing time trying to get you into my trigger guard before I do my reload. Right. Just do the damn reload and do what you got to do. <laughs> you know, it's uh, yeah, that's that's somebody who can't pick a lane. Right. <laughs> that's what that is. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so the last one I'll finish with is because uh, I got to get it in. Is um, you know, when it comes to tactical reloads, and we've had this discussion many times. Mm-hmm. Oh wait a minute! So my my family member has finally woken up. Oh yes. So, the Let me world, see if I. The world debut. Yes, here we go. All right, come here, buddy. So, I have got a new family member. Yes, this is my uh, my eleven week old Belgian Malinois. His name is Slash, and uh, I named him Slash because I want to get a little carrying harness for him, and I'm going to get a ferret. I'm going to teach it to ride in the harness, and I'm going to name him Burn so I can yell for Slash and Burn. Yeah. Yes, but he's uh, 
he is quite rambunctious and I'm actually grateful that he slept through this interview because if not, he's going to eat everything because yep. that's what little velociraptors do. Yep. But uh, that's my little boy. So say hi slash you are now famous. That's right. Um, yeah. So it is uh, all, all 200 and something people that will listen to this this week and the other <laughs> hundred that will watch on YouTube will know who you are. No. So <laughs> are you kidding? The dog's going to be more famous than me. That's right. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So no, I, um, uh, you know, it goes to the, the tactical reloads, you know, and the one term that I have heard since 1995 has always been you do a tactical reload when there is a lull in the gunfight. How long and we is that? laugh about yeah we laugh about this right well let's critically think about this right what is a lull and i do it I, you've you've seen me do it i ask the students i'm like what does a lull mean to you right and you run down the line of students and you'll get every response from it's a couple of seconds it's 10 seconds it's you know when the the shooting dies down you know all this and the point is is that the problem with that is a lull is a time-based stimulus. There is some amount of time that you have to make a determination. Hey, I have enough time if I'm so inclined. You know, the topic of even performing a tactical reload is another discussion. But let's say we're a fan of it. We're going to perform one. Now it becomes there's some time-based stimulus under the the guise of this nebulous word lull that's never defined that hey now there's a lull i should be doing attack reload right and the problem with that is who controls time not you it's the other guy and he's not going to tell you hey i'm giving you a four second lull (laughs) you know That lull could be half a second. It could be 30 seconds. The problem is it's time-based and you don't control time and you have no idea how long it's going to last. So the idea of I want to tell somebody to unload their gun or to perform some type of, of process to get the gun back up to a full magazine when I don't know how much time they have doesn't make sense to me. You know, it's a time-based stimulus and I don't control the time. Well, is it plausible that I can get caught mid-reload and only have no magazines in the gun and one round? Yeah, with two mags in my hand trying to do some type of manipulation. That's probably not a good time, right? That, that wasn't a big enough lull, but they didn't tell you that, right? So as an instructor, I changed that to a stimulus-based response. And that stimulus is, it's a simple phrase, right? When you feel safe in your environment, what does that mean? Well, it means different things to different people. But when you feel safe to do one, do it. Am I behind cover? Yeah. Has it been three minutes and we fired a bunch of rounds into the house and nothing's coming back out? It might be, hey, I'm moving along the wall from one place to another to get a different advantage. And I'm going to do the tack reload while I'm moving but I'm safe in that environment. You may be like, Hey, when all the bodies are on the ground and we're counting how many dead guys there are, then that's when I'll do attack reload. That's fine. There is no wrong answer because you know, when you feel safe, right? So when you feel safe in your environment, whatever that means to you do attack reload, 
Now it's stimulus-based. It's not time-based, right? And that is, but once again, that's one. I mean, when was the last, when was the first time you heard law in a gunfight? Oh, probably the first time I heard somebody teaching about relets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember mine was ninety-five. Yeah, I guess it would have been ninety-nine for me when they were teaching all this in the academy. Yeah. So you're thinking what ninety-five? So what's that? Twenty-five, twenty-seven years ago. And I don't know how long that had term had been before I heard it. Right. And yet you still hear it today. Why are instructors pushing things like it? Because there, there's guys out there that don't critically think they just parrot stuff. Mm-hmm. So I guess the moral of this whole episode is don't be a damn parrot. Yep. Develop your craft, be an instructor, critically think words have meanings and express what you want with appropriate words and concepts, do the demos to support them and stop trying to do stuff in a square style range, right? Come at it with a mentality of this is what happens in the real world. How do I best mimic it here? Right. Don't come up with stuff on the square range and hammer it into the round peg. And there you go. I, I, did, I did your wrap up for you. There you go. Well, now that the wrap up is done, tell them about all fire dynamics. Oh, uh, wow. There's not much to tell. So my private combative training company is a company called All Fire Dynamics. The website's being redone. Um, and, uh, but you can <laughs> the reach The website's me. been under construction since 2013. Well, it has been um, <laughs> because, uh, because my, my website builder guy started some podcast. He doesn't have any time to work on my website now. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm not uh, your website builder guy. So there must be somebody else. <laughs> No, so uh, so that's where it's at. You can reach yeah. me through there if you need to, or uh, you know, find me on Facebook or on Instagram. It's all Fire Dynamics, you know. Mm-hmm. So you can search and and do stuff there. But uh, uh, actually, the last several, probably now, ooh, probably the last four or five years, I have primarily been doing long range precision. Um, I'm in with another company called Outdoor Solutions. We basically um, teach long range precision shooting. Um, from the perspective of, of, of hunting, you know, long range shooting uh, with PRS and the national rifle league has taken off tremendously. And now there's a huge interest in guys that don't want to stalk up close. They want to shoot antelope from four or five, 600 yards away, you know? And, uh, and so that has been, uh, been kind of my focus for a while. I've been doing a lot of uh, long range precision, but I still uh, do all the other combative stuff and I need to get back into it, but that's uh, that's there. Right now, I just live vicarious through you and jump in on your classes every now and then as that unknown guy at the end of the range. Well, that's the thing. If if you sign up for one of my classes, you never know who the mystery guest instructor's line will be. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Because there's there's been quite a few big names who have like been shown up or just tagged in. Like, hey, you know, Chuck Hager, come over here and teach us walk on this. Or yes. By the way, folks, there's a uh, grandmaster down here that's going to show you how to do that. You know, I just uh, well that that adds to the fun and adds to the value of the classes. Well, and if I, if that's the price I got to pay to get to be a student for a little bit again and get on the line and work on my skills, I'll gladly pay that price. Yeah. Uh, uh, for the folks that want to shoot antelope at 600 yards, I've got a clue for you. Kind of like whitetail. They show up along the side of the roads. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was driving through Wyoming year before last, and I've been through the Bighorn National Forest. I have been through all this, you know, just pristine country all this barren country whatever and i come around the down this hill 
and into this little small town and there's the biggest antelope buck i've ever seen standing right in somebody's front yard in town mm-hmm. i've just been through i haven't seen another car for 45 minutes and i come into this town and there's this massive antelope. oh buck. yeah it always works that way you know you you've been you've been in some some 30 degree mountainside you know observation point for four days and see nothing you go into town to get a hot cup of coffee and there it is walking across the street yeah you know yeah yeah, I, I do appreciate that, but well, it's been fun. I, yeah. uh, man, I, I, I felt like I, I really needed to, uh, like I said, I even, I put on a collar here. I needed to, to, to class up the, uh, the presentations. I mean, I mean, when I heard that David Cagle had like four on here and I'm like, right. what he's like, you know, isn't he still like a teenager? I mean, I gotta, I gotta get on the board here and, uh, <laughs> You know, David, we've never met, but uh, I, I have a lot of tremendous respect for your skills and your background and where you're at in life. So, uh, so uh, yes, uh, I'm making fun of you, and I we've never even met, but uh, uh, I know you vicariously through uh, through Lee. So, uh, so yeah, when I saw you were on four times, I'm like, man, I got to get on the board. So, uh, so thank you for for having me. Well, there you go. Now you just got to pass Gale House. Hold on a second. Let me get my cup. <laughs> I I still don't, I've got mine. I still don't understand this. You're gonna explain yeah. this in depth, but all I know is when his name gets mentioned, we have to drink. So have to take a drink. And then I, uh, you know, you'll you'll catch up to Hearn here eventually. But uh, you know, right, it, sounds it, good. It, it's been fun. Uh yeah, I, I did an episode with um Rob Beckman on his show on how to start a podcast, ironically. And he's like, How do you do your content? I said, It's it's easy, it's just me having phone conversations with people and letting other people listen now yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. this is when i when eric and i call each other this is what it's like yeah pretty much when pretty we much. we meet up at a restaurant somewhere or we go to a range this is what we do the whole time and now you the audience is just getting invited to join in well i think uh, as a future topic maybe uh you can have a panel discussion and we'll talk about the uh the eventual acquittal of mr rittenhouse and and that process <laughs> that one uh there, there's no telling how that's likely to come out yeah no i agree with that but uh that'll still be an interesting dynamic to go through um you know you, you know it, it's funny how people make big pronouncements on the internet based on just a headline or a quick 20 second news story or one article and they make all these pronouncements and then when the trial happens all this other stuff comes out and they're like, oh well, i didn't know that well yeah maybe the people that were making the decisions at the time did know all of that stuff and what i'm seeing now with the rittenhouse trial is that people are saying well i didn't know all this stuff to begin mm-hmm. with this is much different than what i imagined but they're also they're focusing on this little bit of testimony, that little bit of testimony. Oh, well, the jury has to do this. The jury has to do that. Folks, there is no telling what a jury is likely to do. Uh, I have personally seen a jury acquit a person of burglary, but convict him of possessing the tools to commit the burglary that he was just acquitted of. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's no telling what's going to happen when something goes into the jury. No, and what uh, makes that even more funny is it's not like you can go to Home Depot and go to the burglary section and get specific tools. Right. You know what I mean? So I, I'm going to go on a limb and say those tools were probably any tool that you or I would have in our garage, but somehow with no burglary, they're still right. considered burglary tools. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a shooting in which I investigated. 
and which someone who many people in the training community would know who the person involved is. I'm not going to say his name here in this, this setting. Uh, it all came down to the jury of where the flashlight was pointed. Mm-hmm. Because the other side of this person in the trial, the, the guy was claiming that the deputy's lights were shining in his eyes and that he couldn't tell it was a deputy sheriff. Right. Now, all of the commentary online about this incident was about other things. But the jury focused in on what position was it, where was the deputy's flashlight shining? And, you know, the videos out there, you can go watch the whole thing. The jury had the video freeze-framed, you know, paused at a specific moment in the video when they could look, oh, no, the deputy's flashlight was shining on the floor. It wasn't shining in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what that jury's decision yeah. came down to. And that had nothing to do with what anything else was, you know, was mentioned in all the online discussion. And, you know, it it, it did prompt a lot of discussion back when it happened. So, oh, yeah. So you and I, we can go down this use of force rabbit hole. Like yeah. I, I saw one um, out of New Mexico where um, they were. Uh, it was an issue over qualified immunity. Mm-hmm. Um, because they officers that claim qualified immunity and they denied it. And the whole article, the whole basis of the initial shooting was, and why it was excessive force was the, it was a, you know, suicide by cop. Uh, but the, the defendant had a knife, right. But he didn't have it tip up. He had it reverse grip. So it was along the back and his hands were down by his side. So it was kind of hidden by his form. And, uh, the uh, the jury said that well because the knife wasn't pointed at the officer he was behind him it was no threat to him and he didn't need to shoot him even though he's walking up on the guy because apparently to be able to do this mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you know but it's just yeah different different topics different things you know right. juries are funny things you know interesting use of force where guys like you and I geek out on on things like that and. Uh, yeah, but yeah, maybe uh, maybe a little, uh, once all this settles, a little panel interview might be in order. You there might you need go. to expand it, you know, and be the moderator of the panel. You know, I'm thinking of the incident. I think it was a University of Cincinnati police officer that ended up shooting a guy on a traffic stop, um, got drugged down the road by the car. Yeah, you're apparently like you reached in, tried to grab the guy. Right. And when I first watched the video, I'm like, oh, he didn't get drugged. And then you showed me the video when you slowed it down. It's like, look, see the spot on the road? Like you were watching the video down the road, you could see a mark in the roadway. Mm-hmm. And then later on in the video, after the shooting is taking place, the officer is like next to that mark. Well, how did he get there? Mm-hmm. Oh, he did get drugged by the car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it didn't show, you couldn't really tell it in the actual watching of the video. But when you go back and start looking at the, you know, the landscape around the incident. Well, he got moved somehow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All good stuff, man. Yeah. All these nuances. Yeah. Like I said, uh, yeah, I got three more episodes before I'm even close <laughs> to Kegel. So I got to come up with some more content material for, for the next time. Yeah. We got to get you tied up here. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, Eric, thanks for playing along today. And, and audience, I hope that you've enjoyed it. Uh, again, uh, share the links to the show with your intelligent friends. Don't share it with the dumb ones. And uh, let's, let's, if you want to keep these episodes going, let's keep it going. Let's keep it growing. And uh, as always, thank you for your time. <laughs>